Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing, turn your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2, as we continue our study uh, through this book, through this epistle. And this morning we find ourselves in James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, but I'm going to read uh, 14 through 20. So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. If you'll follow along now as I begin to read God's Word, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. When I was a boy... Attending Sunday school, there's a little song that we would sing, and I especially remember singing it at summer camp, but it goes, and I'm not going to sing it, but, <laughs> but it goes, if you're saved and you know it, say amen. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Well, that line, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. I mean, that's the question, isn't it? That's the question. Lord, does my life really show it? Does my life really demonstrate a true faith? Because if you're truly saved, your life will certainly show it. Someone once said that genuine faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see the results. And we all know that's true, don't we? Well, that, loved ones, is the major theme running throughout the book of James, and it can be boiled down to this. Be doers of the word. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Now, what does it mean for faith to be dead? It means it doesn't save. It doesn't justify us before God. It is not alive. It is dead, which means it really doesn't exist at all. It's a false faith. 
Genuine faith must be and will be evident in the life. It affects the way you live. It, it behaves in a certain way. This isn't a new subject in James. He actually began dealing with this issue back in chapter 1. It's the theme of the book. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he said of his own will, speaking of God, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And after mentioning the Word of God in our regeneration in verse 18, then in verses 19 to 27 of chapter 1, James exhorted his readers to put away sin and then to live according to the Word. And his point is now that you've been born again by the transforming power of God's Word, you need to live according to the Word, allowing it to continue its divine work in and through your lives. But as we learn, this doesn't just happen uh, passively. This doesn't just happen apart from the believer's own sincere determination and effort. It begins with the believer humbly receiving the truth of God's Word. But it doesn't stop there. It must be acted upon. We must, we must do God's Word. It must be heard and obeyed if it's to be effective in our lives. James said in verse 22 of chapter 1, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. The real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth is a faith that both humbly hears what God says and then does it with an obedient, willing heart. What we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say. And that's James' great concern, isn't it? that believers are doers of the Word, that we live according to the Word, that our new life in Christ is expressed in behavior that is consistent with a genuine faith, a faith that will be manifested by living in obedience to the Word of God. And now as we come to verses 14 to 26 of chapter 2, James is continuing to deal with the issue of being doers of the Word and not hearers only, emphasizing the fact that genuine faith in our hearts will be evident in the fruit of our lives. That what we do reveals who we are. In other words, real faith will result in genuine works because real faith, saving faith, is not a passive faith. It's an active faith, an obedient faith, a faith that works. It will not be perfect in obedience, obedience not in this life, but good works will be present, and that will be the desire and the direction of our lives. And conversely, faith without works is dead. It's useless, it's non-existent, and it can never save. Now notice how James repeats himself in verses 14 to 26 to make sure we don't miss his emphasis. Verse 14, what good is it if a man says he has faith but has no works? Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. He's emphasizing the fact that there is a kind of faith that does not save. It's a faith that does not have works. Saving faith is always verified by good works, and a false dead faith is indica always indicated by the absence of works. Now, it is very important for us to understand what James is not saying. James is not saying that we are saved by works. We are saved by faith alone. 
James is simply stating what the entire New Testament affirms. That every Christian saved through faith in the Son of God has this calling then to do good works. Let me prove it to you. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And walk means our our manner of life, so that we should live in them, that this would be uh, our consistent manner of life. To the Colossians, he wrote in Colossians 1.10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wrote to Titus, and Titus, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verse 14. He said, uh, speaking of Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, there is absolutely no difference in the teaching of James from any New Testament teaching about the necessity of good works as a result or as evidence of our salvation. This is taught by every other writer in the Bible, but it's not understood by so many within the evangelical church. And that is why when you come to this passage, some some think that James is actually contradicting the Apostle Paul. And this is how the typical argument goes. Well, Paul said salvation is by grace alone. And so if we accept what James says, that we also have to have works, we're we're adding to grace, thus voiding grace and making salvation an issue of grace plus works. But that argument is based on a very superficial and erroneous understanding of what these two men are teaching. There is no contradiction between James and Paul regarding faith. Because Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion, and James' focus is after conversion. Paul and James are addressing different problems in the churches they're writing to. Paul is fighting against the false idea that we can earn our salvation by our works, while James, on the other hand, is fighting against an easy believism that has reduced salvation to merely an intellectual belief. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace, and then James is saying that salvation by grace will result in good works. So there's no debate here. There's no contradiction. So we mustn't picture James and Paul standing toe-to-toe with each other with a conflicting understanding of the gospel. Instead, they are standing back-to-back with each other, fighting two different enemies, and together defending a united and proper understanding of the gospel. This passage gives us a picture of a glorious gospel that is received by grace through faith, but this faith is not merely an intellectual belief. 
It is a faith that results in obedience to the commands of Christ, which will result in good works in our lives. A Christian's good works do not contribute in any way to the gaining of our salvation, but loved ones, they are an evidence. They are an evidence that we are, in fact, the redeemed of the Lord. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but as one man said, the faith that saves is never alone. It is always zealous to do good works. And that's the point James is making. The true saving faith will result in and manifest itself by good works. And nowhere does James more passionately argue and illustrate this theme than in verses 14 to 26 of chapter 2. This passage forces us to answer the question, that, that penetrating question, if you say you believe, then why do you live, why do you behave like you do not? In this passage, James converses with an imaginary person, a person who claims to have faith but has no works, a person who claims that you can separate faith from works. And this obviously was a common thought among some of James' readers, and so he addresses it very clearly and quite strongly. He begins in verse 14 with two rhetorical questions. Notice verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And so the first question is, what good is it? The word good means advantage or benefit. So he's asking, what good or, or benefit or advantage is it, my brothers? And he, once again, referring to his readers as my brothers, just adding that special note of personal identification and love. It, it indicates his tenderness and concern in dealing with this extremely important matter. I mean, as their brother in Christ, he is concerned about them, and it is his hope. It's his hope that they will not be like the person depicted in this passage. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? And the word faith and Scripture sometimes emphasizes a man's personal belief and trust in Christ. At other times, faith speaks of the body of truth or beliefs a Christian holds. And if that's the case, it is usually referred to as the faith. Here, James is speaking of one's personal faith in Christ. And so we would understand this to mean uh, someone who professes who have accepted the truths of the gospel, the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so what good is it, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And when James refers to works, he's speaking of righteous or godly behavior. He's speaking of actions, you know, deeds in the lives of Christians which flow out of their new life in Christ. Works done in obedience to God's revealed word. And some of the righteous and godly works James has already mentioned are, are keeping a tight rein on our tongue. And he's going to address that issue again. Sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others. Personal purity. Not showing partiality. 
Loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, taking care of other people to the same degree and with the same intensity and concern that we naturally have for ourselves. And so James asks, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And as I said, this is a rhetorical question which expects a negative answer. So what good is it? It's of no good. It's not beneficial at all. The key to understanding this is the phrase, if someone says. If someone says. We have to pay careful attention to the exact wording. James does not say that this person actually has faith but not works. Rather, he tells us the person says he has faith. And nothing in the context would suggest that the person is uh, intentionally trying to deceive others. He claims to possess faith, and we we would would uh, should should assume that this person was sincere about the claim. But at the same time, James tells us this person does not have any works, which are the evidence that true faith exists. So there's no evidence to support his claim of faith. He has no works, nothing to show that his claim is valid. And so James asked the second question, can that faith save him? And again, the grammatical form of the question calls for a negative answer. Can that faith save him? No, it cannot. And please notice again what James says. He does not ask Can faith save him? It's not what he says. The question James asks is, can that faith save him? That faith. And that faith refers to the faith James has just mentioned. A faith that someone professes to have, but there are no works to validate the claim. There's no evidence of it in their lives. I mean, James is not disputing for one moment that we're saved by faith alone. Rather, he's dealing with the question, what is true saving faith? And his point is that it's not enough just to say that you believe. A lot of people say that they believe. Lots of people say they believe and call themselves Christians. Seventy percent of the people in the United States profess to be Christians. And we know that's not true. A lot of people say they're Christians, say they believe. They even accept the Bible's diagnosis of man's sinful condition. They accept that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the remedy from God for man's sin. They go to church when they're not too busy doing other things. They may even go to home fellowship. They, they like to read and talk about spiritual things. When, when the conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they, they sound like believers. They've got the vocabulary. They know the the basic teachings of Christian faith. They they hold to orthodox evangelical theology. You know, they're they're pleasant folks. Seem to live uh, decent lives. They may indulge in a vice or two. Yet, as one man said, there is nothing distinctively Christian about their behavior. 
They may be decent neighbors and may perform a little community service, but there is no real self-sacrifice. There is no costly obedience. There are no good works that go against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. Lots of people go to church and claim to be followers of Christ and hold to orthodox evangelical theology, but that may or may not mean a thing. Because it doesn't matter what you say. Talk is cheap. It only matters what is demonstrated in your life. As the song said, uh, you know, if you're truly saved, your life will surely show it. True saving faith will be evident in our lives because the new birth is followed by new life. You cannot have the life of God in, in, in the form of the Holy Spirit invade your dead, dark soul and bring new life and there not be a change. I mean, how can a man be converted if he's not changed? That is an absolute contradiction in terms. And that is James' argument. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. No one is saved without becoming a new creation in Christ. No one. When we're born again, internally, the gospel bears the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of believers, and, and it gradually but inevitably changes our thinking and behavior from the inside out. And, and this work of the Spirit internally results in us bearing fruit externally in the form of good works. Put another way, the new creation we are inwardly will be manifested outwardly in good works. I mean, we cannot get around it. Scripture will not allow it. Good works are the inevitable outworking of Christ's life in his people. And so although we are not saved by works, we most certainly are saved for good works. Again, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's why he created us which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Paul also wrote to Titus uh, in another verse, in chapter 3, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We are saved for good works. The lives of Christians ought to be characterized by good works, following, of course, the example of our Savior who Acts 10 tells us went around doing good. And certainly, I mean, new believers do not immediately understand the full implications of the gospel and, and know everything that they should believe and everything that they should and should not do. I mean, those things come with time as one grows in the grace and the knowledge of God and His Word. But there is an immediate and new spiritual and moral orientation and direction that the Lord gives every child who is born into His family and kingdom. 
mean, salvation does not produce immediate perfection, but it does produce a new direction. The new disposition that, that hates sin, loves the Lord, and, and seeks to know Him and obey His will, uh, obey His will will begin to manifest itself in outward behavior. And as I said at the beginning of our study this morning, what we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say. Yet so many people want to talk about what they don't do. Well, I don't do this, 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 and this. Well, that's fine. Uh, if that's, you know, what you choose. But there are a lot of unbelievers that don't do those same things, so what is your point? All you've described to me is not a Christian, but a moralist. And moralism will damn your soul. There are a lot of moral people on their way to hell. Well, I, I go to church every now and then when I'm not too busy and don't have something else going on, even read my Bible on occasion. Okay, so you're a religious moralist. We laugh, but a religious moralist is doubly damned because they're absolutely convinced they're on their way to heaven. What we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say. Even in the early church, there were those who claimed they had saving faith yet did not possess salvation. Because you see, wherever there is the true, you will always find the counterfeit. I mean, Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. People with dead faith will substitute words for works. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and for giving a testimony, and, and they can quote the right Bible verses from uh, or right verses from the Bible. But their walk doesn't measure up to their talk. I mean, they talk a big game, but there's no reality to it. They think that their words are as good as works, but they're wrong. Because a profession of faith that is devoid of active obedience, which results in good works, is of no benefit to anyone. It cannot save, no matter how strongly it might be proclaimed. And so James is saying it's possible to claim to have faith, but not actually have it to say you have faith but not actually be saved. I can think of nothing more frightening. So how do you know if someone has faith that saves? Well, James tells us to look for works. That's his point, because works are the result of the fruit of faith. Real, genuine faith produces fruit. This means that if there is no fruit, then clearly there is no faith. This is the same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. He said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If you look at a tree with oranges uh, hanging from its limbs, you know it's an orange tree. I mean, what is on the uh, outside is evidence of what is on the inside. That's what James is saying. Good works in our lives give evidence of the faith in our hearts. He is not saying that uh, any person who does good works is saved, but that the person without them is not. If there's no fruit, there's no faith. It's that simple. It's just that simple. You will know faith by its works. And now in verses 15 to 17, Uh, The rhetorical questions are followed by a hypothetical but very realistic illustration. And James illustrates his point by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without any acts of compassion. Notice verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So here we're introduced to two people. First, a brother or sister, which indicates they're believers. It's possible James may have a married couple in mind. But whether it's a married couple or an individual believer, they're they're fellow Christians who who belong to the church community. And we should note that that Christians have a special responsibility to fellow believers within the church. Paul said in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, not when it's convenient, but as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I mean, Christians are to extend their love to all in need, but especially to other believers within the church. That's where it starts. And if it's not happening here, it most likely is not happening out there. And so next we're told the specific needs of this couple or this believer. They, James says they were poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, poorly clothed does not mean they were uh, totally naked, but rather they were insufficiency, insufficiently clothed. And these people are also without adequate food supplies. The word lacking means to leave off or be deprived. So they, live, they literally lived day-to-day wondering where their basic necessities were going to come from. It's not that they uh, do not have nice clothes, but that they don't have enough clothing to keep warm and decent. It's not that they do not have any food for the rest of the week, but that they do not have anything to eat today. And so James is describing someone whose clothing and food were not adequate. They weren't sufficient. And they desperately needed assistance. That's the first individual or couple we're introduced to. The second person we're introduced to is identified as one of you. One of you. This person, though unidentified, is among James' readers, someone in the church. And this person is depicted as having plenty of clothing and food. 
And so faced with this obvious need, what does uh, this fellow church member do? Well, he says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. Without giving them the things needed makes clear that this is not a case of inability in the face of a sincere desire to meet the need. This person has plenty, but is not willing to share. He has no intention of personally supplying the need. The expression, things needed for the body, is literally the needful things of the body, and it occurs only here in the New Testament but it was very common in secular Greek literature. And though the direct reference is to the needed food and clothing, James probably intended it to include all those things. I mean, everything that is necessary for bodily existence and well-being. So we shouldn't just limit this to food and clothing. And so this religious miser, he sees the need has the means to meet it, yet what does he do? He says to his fellow believer in need, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. Doesn't even lift the finger. Does absolutely nothing to meet the need when he's fully able to do so. All this person does is offer a pious platitude. Go in peace, you know, which is equivalent to a superficial, well, God bless you, brother. You know, be warmed and filled, which is equivalent to saying, well, you know, God take care of you. But he had no intention of being the channel for that care. Now, it's possible due to the way that this is written in the Greek that it is said with an even more indifferent, cruel, and sarcastic attitude, which says, in effect, warm and feed yourself. As if the needy believer would have not already, not already done so if he was able. So this man sent the needy believer away, wishing them well, even mentioning their very needs. You know, keep warm and be filled, eat well. Now, it's shocking. It's shocking to think of a believer who is able to help saying such a thing to a fellow believer. And we should be ashamed and embarrassed that he professes to believe in Jesus. But it happens all the time. And this is especially cruel and deeply hypocritical. And in some ways, it is even more wicked than the blatant partiality of verses 1 through 4. You see, the wickedness of verses 15 to 17 is that it's couched in religious, caring terms. It's pious. It's very religious. It's designed to make the speaker appear genuinely concerned. But what it lacks is the going to his own closet and pantry and getting out of his own clothing and food and and sharing it with his brother or sister in need. This professed believer's words are nothing more than a religious cover for his refusal to act. 
James says, what good is that? The answer is it's not good at all. It's totally useless. In fact, it proves that uh, this person's faith is empty. James already said in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Well, it's of no good. Can that faith, a faith that someone claims to have but has no works, to validate the claim, save him? Absolutely not. If there's no fruit, there's no faith. Again, it's that simple. A faith without works that does not help the person in need does not save your own soul. That kind of faith is dead. It's not faith at all. You know, you can argue with me all you want. You can do cartwheels all around this text to try to find your way out of it, but you'll never find your way out of this truth. Because it's here. It's right here. Someone who responds like this to a brother or sister in Christ does not have faith that saves. And that is exactly what 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Well, of course, the answer is it doesn't. So James or John followed that up with little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, the kind of faith that offers warm wishes and pious platitudes does no good for the brother or sister in need. It does no good for the person who offers them, and it does no good on the last day. Because Jesus taught that his people have a special obligation to help one another. In fact, he said to help fellow believers is to directly serve him, and not to serve them is to forsake him. And on the day of judgment, that service or lack of it will be the mark that separates the sheep from the goats, those with true living faith from those with the false dead faith. Those who enter the kingdom will not be those who merely profess the name of Christ, but those whose lives of obedience and service to him provided their profession was, or proved their profession was true. Jesus described what he will do on judgment day. Matthew 25. Beck, why don't you turn there? Matthew 25. Matthew 25, I'm going to read verses 31 through 45. You'll follow along. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. As you did it to one of the least of believers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's easy to see analogies to James seen today. And my guess is there are probably some of you here this morning who have experienced something like this from, you know, so-called brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you haven't been lacking adequate clothing or missing meals, but perhaps, you know, had some other material need in your life. Or perhaps you've endured pain and desperately needed comfort, or you had a specific need that required uh, at least a a caring, uh, listening ear, a shoulder to, to cry on, to share the burden with you. And instead of receiving any real or material help, you heard a pious platitude. Hang in there. Hang in there, brother. Well, you know, just trust the Lord. Just trust the Lord. God is going to provide. Well, certainly Jesus did instruct believers to trust God for their needs. But he also, according to Scripture, expected believers to share their goods with their brothers and sisters in need. How is it that God meets needs of believers and the needs of the local church? I suppose he could do it miraculously, but he doesn't. He does it through the giving and the sharing of his people. And so instead of reaching out to you with real help, those who could and should, uh, could and should have stepped up, did nothing to meet your need. Other than, well, just trust the Lord, brother. That's James' indictment. James does not require believers to do absolutely everything, but we must do something. We must do something when we see a brother or sister in need. I mean, there are needs all around us. So this morning, if you you tend to talk about your faith in Christ and the truth of his word, but do nothing or very little, you may be in serious spiritual trouble. And my word to you this morning would be what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And that means examine yourself right now, today, at this point in time. How does your life measure up to the Word of God? Don't examine it in light of some uh, experience 30 years ago where you walked an aisle or signed a card or, or prayed a prayer or whatever. 
Because if your life hasn't changed since that point, if your life today isn't in line, isn't in in accordance with God's word, then perhaps there was no real change. So James says, examine your, or Paul says, examine yourselves. That means right now, today, to see whether you are in the faith. A prayer prayed, an aisle walked, a card signed may or may not, may or may not mean an absolute thing. It may mean nothing whatsoever. Don't cling to that. Examine your life today to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, Paul said. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You know, if you refuse to get your hands dirty, or if you are cheap and stingy and greedy and resentfully unwilling to give help to others, you need to take a very serious inventory of your soul. Because James says in verse 17, so also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Say it again. Dead. Dead. Faith by itself, that is a professed faith, if it's not accompanied by obedience, by action, by works, it's dead. It is devoid of the life of God. There is no spiritual activity. There is no sign of life, no functioning beyond a mere profession. It is marked by empty confession and false compassion. But a genuine living faith is never by itself because saving faith inevitably shows up in good works. Genuine faith, true faith, like a living tree, will reveal itself by the works it produces. I mean, works, listen, works are not an added extra any more than breath is an added extra to a living body. Works are part and parcel of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And now we read in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, James was was an excellent reader of people. And he knew that some would respond to his teaching by suggesting that uh, it was just a matter of emphasis. This whole thing is just a matter of emphasis. And so he continues his dialogue with the imaginary objector uh, who claims that you can separate faith from works. That's what's taking place here. In other words, this objector, uh, he's saying, well, you know, you have faith, I have works. This Christian over here specializes in faith, and, and one over there, well, he specializes in works. But we're both Christians, we just have a, a different emphasis. So why, James, are you just insisting that everyone has to be the same? People are just different. Some are gifted with faith, some are gifted with works. They don't necessarily have to go together. It's entirely possible to have one without the other. That's just the way things are. Well, James is not going to have one minute of it. He's going to have none of it. Look what he says in verse 18, the rest of the verse. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So he says, show me your faith without works. 
The word show means exhibit, demonstrate, put on display. So how can a faith with no works, which James tells us is a dead faith, be demonstrated? How can it be put on display? If you can't actually see it, and you can't see faith, then how can anyone know it actually exists? And what other way can you possibly demonstrate that your faith is genuine except by living the kind of life that proves it to be so? How can you show faith without works? Well, the truth is you cannot show me your faith without works, without any practical evidence or outworking of it, because true faith always gives practical evidence. Faith is proved by a way of life. And that is why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Good works are what make faith visible. Good works demonstrate that faith is real. A person's claim to have faith is vindicated by a life of holiness and good works. I mean, faith and works are inseparable. Because true living faith produces living action. One man said, faith and works are like the wings of a bird. There can be no real life, no flight, with a single wing, whether works or faith. But when the two are pumping together in concert, their owner, so, owner soars through the heavens. Faith and works, neither is authentic without the other. And that's James' point, simply that you cannot separate true faith from works. If someone claims to have faith but has no good works, his claim proves to be false. Living faith produces good fruit because that's its nature, that's its purpose. And a dead faith does not because it cannot. Faith can only be validated or verified by works. Now, let me say something. We need to be very clear about this. I mean, James is not saying that good works automatically mean that a person has genuine saving faith. And I say that because there are people involved in humanitarian work all over the world who are not believers, I mean, who deny the very existence of God. And so the mere presence of good works does not prove the presence of faith. But when someone professes to have faith in Christ, if their faith is genuine, there will be good works. Good works are not optional for those who have faith. They're inevitable. But the absence of good works proves the absence of faith. Your faith is non-existent if there are no good works in your life. Even if someone claims to believe in God, I mean, orthodox theology is no guarantee that their faith is genuine. 
You can have a a correct belief system, you know, a correct systematic theology, but without works, it, it proves nothing. It means nothing. And James uses the faith of demons to illustrate this very point. Look at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. When James says, you believe that God is one, he was making a clear reference to the passage most familiar to his Jewish readers, the Shema, the basic article of Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. But where most Jews fell short was in not obeying the following verse, which commands, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And James' point here is that you may have an intellectual belief in the truth, but without obedience to Christ, it's a worthless kind of belief, just like that possessed by demons. You believe that God is one, you do well. So, hey, you know, that's good. That's good, James says. I mean, he's not belittling a sincere claim to orthodox belief. I mean, orthodoxy is better than heresy. So it's good. You know, it's good, James says. You do well. It's it's good you believe there is one God. Those who believe that truth do well. But is belief in the existence of God sufficient for the saving of the soul? James answers by pointing to the demons of hell. They also believe in God. I mean, do you know that? Satan and his demons know and believe the truths about God. I mean, that comes as a shock to some people that that the devil and his demons have faith. What do they believe? Well, for one thing, they believe in the eternal existence and power of the one true God. They are neither atheists nor agnostics. They also believe in the deity of Christ. We're told in Matthew 8, 29, that when two demon-possessed men met, met Jesus, the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? In Mark 1, 24, at Capernaum, an evil spirit possessing a man in the synagogue cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And later we're told in Mark 3.11 when evil spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Demons believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in his virgin birth, perfect life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection, and that he ascended to heaven and is now seated at the Father's right hand. They saw all of that. They believe all of that. They know all of that is true. And they believe in his certain return to earth. They believe in the existence of a place of punishment. They also recognize Christ as the judge. They submit to the power of his word. They have to. So the demons have an informed orthodox theology. They could sign the statement of faith or the doctrinal statement of any evangelical church. They believe everything orthodox. So what does that say about men who don't believe? What does that say about 
Men, professed believers who don't even believe those things. One man wrote, speaking of demons, they actually have a more informed faith than human hypocrites. Men and women can make their easy professions of faith and and live their worldly lives as if there were no God at all. Their casual blasphemies about the man upstairs can roll off their tongues with never the slightest tremble at the consequences of offending a sovereign and holy God. Why is it, he says, that demons tremble while sinners can sail on in blissful unconcern? The answer is that the demons are not so blind as people. They know their latter end. They really fear the wrath to come. But careless sinners say they believe in God positively, go on in daily life to live as if He did not exist, and yet can dream that they are safe in the everlasting arms. The demons believe everything orthodox, and not only that, James tells us they shudder. They shudder. And the word shudder means to bristle. It conveys the picture of of an absolute horror that, that causes the hair to stand on end. And the present tent pictures this as their characteristic reaction whenever they face the reality of the eternal God. Unlike human hypocrites who merely profess faith, the demons have an intense, unquestioned belief in God's existence and power. But their faith brings them no peace or salvation. I mean, they're fully aware of the doom that awaits them at the hands of the infinitely perfect God, and so they shudder, they they shake, they're in great fear. I mean, think of it, they have an informed theology But that theology hasn't changed the direction of their lives because their faith, the belief that they have, does not transform their character and conduct or change their prospects for the future. Their faith is merely an intellectual assent or understanding. It also stirs their emotions, but it is without any affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a faith without repentance a faith without love, a faith without holiness, a faith without a hunger for God. They believe against their wills. Their faith lacks any influences of the Holy Spirit. They they do not have a faith that saves. And James' point is that mere intellectual assent to the truth of God in Christ is not enough to save. You can know and believe important and true things about God and Christ and the Bible and salvation and still not be a Christian. Because there is an eternity's worth of difference between an intellectual assent to those truths and an embracing of those truths with your entire life. You see, real faith is more than mental assent to truth. It is a belief that involves the heart so that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, Paul said, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
You see, it's one thing to say, I believe this airplane will hold me. It's quite another to fly in it somewhere. The reality is that people who merely give an intellectual assent to these truths are no better off than the demons. Secondly, James, James wants us to know that faith is not simply an emotional response. The faith of demons is not just intellectual, it's also emotional. They, they believe and they shudder. They're, they're affected by the truth of God. They tremble at it. They believe and tremble. But it's not a saving experience to believe and tremble. So a person can be enlightened in his or her mind, stirred in their emotions, be affected by the truth they read or hear, and yet be lost forever. Because true saving faith involves more than the intellect and the emotions. And the third point James makes about faith is that faith involves willful obedience. Willful obedience. You show your faith not just by what you think, or by what you feel, or by what you say, but by what you do. Faith acts. Faith works. If your faith consists merely of listening to the Word, talking about the Word, even being stirred in your emotions in response to the Word, your faith is dead. It's dead. Because as James has made abundantly clear, faith acts on the word. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our life, our lives. We do what we believe, don't we? We do what we believe. We act on what we believe. And so if our lives do not outwardly manifest the faith that we claim, then the faith is not there. It's dead. It's non-existent. It cannot save. And again, it's no better than the faith of demons. There are a lot of people running around today with nothing more than a demon faith. And they think they're on their way to heaven, but in reality, they're on their way to hell. You see, being a Christian involves submitting your life to Christ. Your life, that's all of you. Being a Christian involves submitting your life, all you are, all you have to Christ. It's trusting Christ alone for salvation and and then living for Christ. You receive new life in Christ, then you reveal that new life by the way you live. And we talked last week about uh, selective obedience. That's not obedience at all, it's disobedience. So it's not, you know, you select what you want to believe, what you want to do, and and chuck the rest. No, we submit our lives to Christ. We trust in Him alone. We live for Him. The new life we received in Him, we're going to reveal in the way that we live, in the things that we do, in the way that we speak, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we love our wives and our children in the way we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, in the way we meet the needs that we see all around us. 
In verse 20, we'll talk more about this next time, James reiterates the point he has just shown us. He says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, the faith apart from works is useless? So he says, you, you foolish person, you, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? And then in the remainder of the, of the chapter, he's going to use two examples from the Old Testament. And he chooses two people from opposite ends of the social and spiritual spectrum. He chooses a patriarch and a prostitute. I mean, one is a Jew. In fact, he's the father of Judaism. The other person is a Gentile. One is a man, the other is a woman. But both people were heroes of the faith. Uh, heroes of the faith. They, they had a faith that was demonstrated by their courage and by their actions. But, but that's for next time, Lord willing. And to sum up, I mean, James is, is just simply saying this. That genuine faith in our hearts will be evident in the fruit of our lives, that what we do reveals who we really are. Let me put this in some practical terms. Suppose a member of your home group has lost his job and can't buy school clothes for his family. I mean, you have money in savings, plus you just got a raise. But instead of opening your heart and your bank account to your brother, you merely pat him on the back and say, hey, man, we'll be praying for you. Or suppose an unexpected illness hits your family and the medical bills have made it difficult to stay afloat. Instead of tapping into their bank account or dipping into their savings to help you through this tough time, you get a, a card from the well-off brother that says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Trust God, brother. God will provide. Or suppose you're among the working poor. And there are a lot of those. There's, there are going to be more of those, the way things are going. The working poor, people who are working full time but just can't make enough to make ends meet. I mean, they're not living foolishly, spending their money foolishly. They just don't make enough with, with the cost of everything, the way things are. So suppose you're among the working poor, you're, you're working full-time, you, you can't seem to make enough to support yourself, and, and two members of your extended family with disabilities who you are also caring for in your home. And you need a set of tires on your car because the ones you have are completely bald, and you have to be able to get to work. But instead of helping, instead of helping you get the tires, the supposed brother in the church who has significant funds, who has significant means and, and could very easily help, he refuses to get you the tires and instead sets you down and tells you how to figure a budget so that you can live within your means. Or suppose you're the man working two jobs just to support your family. And then through no fault of your own, due to some dishonest and unscrupulous people taking advantage of you, you find yourself with a debt you can't begin to pay. And when a well-to-do brother hears your plight, he has such great sympathy for you. That he says, he says to you, my first reaction is to take out my checkbook and to take care of this matter for you. 
But then he says, however, if I did that, I would interfere with what God is doing in your life. It's kind of like be warmed and be filled, isn't it? Nothing but pious platitudes to cover up their refusal to act. In each of these cases, we see a specific need. And those with the ability to meet the need. But instead of that, we see a useless, dead response couched in religious terms. They were cheap, greedy, stingy, and grudging toward their brothers and sisters in need. And in light of James' indictment in this text, do these responses exemplify genuine faith? You can talk to me. Absolutely not. Because real faith will result in genuine works. Because real faith, saving faith, is not a passive faith. It is an active faith, an obedient faith, a faith that works. It will not be perfect in obedience. But good works will be present. And that will be the desire and the direction of the life. Conversely, says James, uh, conversely, James says, faith without works is dead. It is useless, it is non-existent, and it can never save. Two men were arguing about this uh, very issue of faith and works while they were being rowed across a river. And the oarsman was a Christian, and he asked if he could get in on the discussion. And they said, well, of course. So uh, he said, let's assume that one of these oars is faith and, and the other one is works. We're going to take the works oar out of the water and just use faith. Well, of course, as a result, the boat just went around in circles. Well, after a while, he said, well, perhaps we've got the wrong one. You know, we'll put the faith oar in the boat and, and just use works to row. The result, of course, was the same. They just went around in circles. Finally, he put both oars in together and the boat went straight for the shore. And the point is simply that biblical Christianity has precisely that kind of balance. Only the person with faith and works together is heading in the right direction. And so, loved ones... Our concern should be to examine our hearts on this issue and to pray that our lives may be pleasing to the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, as Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 10. Let's stand and pray. Comforts me by your blood. We have been 
set free And Lord give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the word you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.